Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we lift our voices together as God's people and sing his praises. Blessing and honor. 
today will bring glory to you and will help us as we follow you and serve you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. One of the great privileges we have of being the church here is having uh, connections to the church around the world and we support a variety of ministries and missionaries. This morning, we are privileged to welcome Steve and Margie Doty uh, back to Houghton. They've been people we have supported for a long time, and they're going to share a few moments about their work and their ministry with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, Good morning. Last month was... 30 years ago that Margie and I got married here in this church, so it's uh, uh, really good to be back here. We serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators uh, in Thailand, Uh, not only in Thailand, but our work extends to the neighboring countries of Myanmar, uh, also known as Burma, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And uh, our work has us helping with 51 different translation projects in that region, and we travel around to help the translations succeed and do good quality work, and uh, we'd actually like to start another 100 projects, so we're actively trying to recruit more people to join our team. Uh, In our work, we help people with their linguistics and language learning and literacy work, as well, obviously, as uh, their translation work, and Margie will explain more about what we do. Okay, well, I don't want anyone to go away thinking that the Dodies are personally translating into 51 different languages. Um, but what, we, what Steve and I have been doing since we moved to Thailand 13 years ago is focusing on training 
and on uh, checking scripture and on administration. So with those three areas, um, what we've been doing is working with our, um, we have a master's degree in linguistics program at Pai Up University in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and we uh, train Asians from these countries and also uh, Westerners how to translate, how to analyze languages. And uh, Steve is also a translation consultant, which means that he looks at people's translation work to make sure that it's clear and accurate and natural. And he's also uh, training other people to be consultants to do the same thing. And then lastly, in administration, Steve is uh, the director for academic affairs, which means that he is um, in charge of our consultant core for linguistics translation and ethnomusicology and anthropology and all the different areas that we uh, are concerned with in our work. Um, and as for me, I've been the uh, director of the Linguistics Institute at Piop University, which focuses on community-level training, as well as research, and uh, our computer programming staff also works there. I'm also uh, the director for Thailand, so I'm responsible for the translation and literacy work that's going on within the country of Thailand. So um, that's what we've been up to lately. So we're busy with Bible translation work, and we want to say thank you very much. We couldn't be doing this ministry without the partnership of churches like Houghton and individuals who care about translating the Bible into other languages. So we want to say thank you very much. Uh, we're only here for a short furlough. We'll be in Houghton this week and then traveling around to other states uh, before returning to Thailand in January. So we want to say thank you very much, and may God bless you. I'd like to invite the ushers forward at this time to assist us with our morning tithes and offerings. Oh, let's go. Oh, 
we come together to, uh, to pray, to give thanks to God for his blessings in our lives, to lay before him the burdens and the concerns of our hearts and minds. If you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we give you thanks today for the privilege of coming to worship and for all of the blessings with which you fill our lives. We pray today that you would open our eyes to the magnificence of all the beauty you've created. We pray that you would open our eyes to to the needs and the hurts and the burdens that we see all around us. That you would give us compassion and sensitivity to people in need. We pray that you would open our eyes to so many of the systems of society that impede justice and love and goodness. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to your spirit at work in us, and all the things that you want to do in us, in this church, and in our lives, and in our world. Father, we pray today for people who are in need. We ask for your care over those who are suffering and sick. We think especially of Bruce and Bill Matt and Bev and Micah. We pray for Linda and for Alton and Isla, for Dick and Edna and Crystal and Emily and others who are on our minds today. And we pray your healing power in each of their lives. We pray for all who are grieving today. We ask for your mercy your strength, your comforting presence upon each of them. We think especially of Doris Wells' family, and we pray that in their grief and loss that they would know your comforting presence upon them. Father, we thank you for the ministry you've given to Steve and Margie, and we pray that you will continue to bless them and work in them And that you would use them to continue to to bring your word to people who do not know you. Father, we ask for your watchful care over all who have been affected by the Ebola virus. People who are grieving deaths. People who are frightened and anxious. People who are right in the middle of where it is worse. We ask that you would bring an end to this crisis, that you would bring healing. And then in the midst of it, that hearts would be open to you and would see your love and your compassion through your followers. We pray, Father, for the ongoing threat of violence in our world. 
We see it in this country and in every country. We think especially of the Middle East and some of the, some of the, uh, the struggles going on there. And the, we ask, Father, that you would bring peace in the war-torn land. And we ask, Father, that you would watch over your people, that your church would be a beacon of light and hope in the midst of darkness and despair. We think especially of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. We think of this young boy, McCall, and his family who've been forced to flee from their homes because they are Christians. We pray your protective care over them and for all of our brothers and sisters in this place and in other places of opposition and persecution. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you for your love and grace that continues to call us to prayer. We offer our prayers today as we always do in the name and power and grace of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our risen King, our returning Lord, and the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Immediately following the scripture reading, children are dismissed to go to children's church or junior church. If you're not sure exactly where to go, just follow the crowd as they head out over to the Christian Ed building. The scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And there be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. 
But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing. There's a peace I've come to Oh, yeah. 
Before you're seated, uh, take a moment, share a word of greeting for those who are here in worship today. There are some people who, in the world who don't believe in heaven or any kind of life after death. But quite frankly, the polls that people take seem to indicate that they are a fairly small minority. The majority of people believe there is something that happens to us after we die beyond just the grave. Now, granted, there are people that have a whole there's a wide range of opinions about that. You have everything from uh, reincarnation to various views of the afterlife. As Christians, we believe in heaven. We believe that there is a, a, an existence beyond the grave. And I've been pondering about the idea of why we believe in heaven. And there are probably a, a number of reasons. One of them is that may at least bolster our perspective about heaven are the stories that we hear from some people about experiences they have had, what we might call near-death experiences or even coming back to life type experiences. It's, it's the experience of heaven is for real. How many of you have read this book or seen the movie? Okay, a lot of us. All right. You know, it's, it's one of those stories that... You hear the stories from people and you think, wow, does that seem right? And then you hear this one and you think, there doesn't seem to be an agenda there. And you, it causes us to say there's something going on. Now, I can't explain everything that is described in this book and other books. I don't quite understand all of it. There's some things that, you know, we may, may don't, maybe don't mesh up with other things we believe, but... There is something to the stories that give us at least a hint there's something else going on beyond death. There is also a sense of, of a yearning in our spirits that this world is not all there is. That there is something more. It's, it's hard to imagine that God would, would create us as human beings and create this world with so much intricacy and beauty and value that living the, perhaps as scripture says, 70 odd years of our lives here on earth would be all there is. There's something in us that feels like, senses there is something more. As Lewis says, uh, you know, something to the effect of, if I find that, that I am experiencing, have a feeling in this world that experiences in this life can't explain, then the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And we have this yearning and there is this sense of the things that happen in life. There, if God is good, there is some form of vindication. Something is going to happen where things are, are, are vindicated. There's recompense. There is, there is a, a writing of things that are, in our, quite frankly, in our world, wrong. 
and that things don't get settled here and something else will happen where those things will be settled. And there is that sense of why we believe in heaven. But quite frankly, the most profound reason for why we believe in heaven is that Jesus says so. And really, that's all that we need. The scriptures tell us there is a heaven. Jesus says to his disciples in those last hours before his death, in the beginning of what's recorded in the 14th chapter of John, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you so that you may be with me where I am. And he says, trust me about it. It's true. And the most profound reason for why we believe in heaven is Jesus said so. But the question is, what exactly does that mean? What is heaven? What is that about? A little bit later on down the road in a month or so, a couple of months, we're going to be talking about the second coming. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the elements of of what happens when Christ returns. But the idea of heaven is this sense that the scriptures describe. It is what happens to us and for us and with us when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise and those who are on earth who are following him go to heaven and we live eternally with him. This is the heaven we're talking about. Now there are all kinds of theories of what that looks like. There are lots of of misperceptions about it. There are lots of ideas about it. It is the great unknown, to be frank. We, we suppose about it. We get glimpses about it in Scripture. We get a lot of our theology from the songs that we sing, rightly or wrongly. And uh, we, But the truth is, we can't say exactly, precisely what it's going to be, but we do get ideas about it. I think one of the most profound things about heaven that we misinterpret is that we have a sense that heaven is a place we're going to go that will be an escape for us. And that's rooted in a mindset that we have, a very dualistic mindset as human beings, that that matter is evil and spirit is good. And heaven is a place where we get rid of all the matter because it's, it's bad. It's where temptation lies. It's where sin, it's where we, we sense and experience sin and, and the barriers to knowing God. And we're going to get rid of all that matter, all that physical stuff, and we're going to be in heaven. And we're going to have this, there's going to be this place. And so our most obvious picture of heaven is something that is not material. So we picture clouds and harps and wings and things like that. And, you know, quite frankly, sometimes it isn't the most appealing place in the world to think about. You know, I I think I've said this before, but when I was in junior high, I remember our youth pastor talking to us about heaven and saying, what is your view of heaven? What do you think heaven should be? And my answer was an unending baseball game. That's the best thing I could imagine. I, I resonate with the guy who overheard a pastor talking with someone who was trying to get him to describe what heaven was. He was struggling to do it. And he said, it'll be greater than anything we imagine. It'll be like a, a, a never-ending church service. <laughs> and the guy said, I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like a different place. <laughs> you know, we, we, we have this mindset that it is this... this 
you know, sort of in the clouds. But the reality is when we read the scriptures, what we find described even in the Old Testament, Isaiah says in chapter 66, he talk, God talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And in Revelation 21, it talks about, a, John says, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And there is this sense that heaven will not be the cloud, cloudy kind of picture. It will be the restored heaven, the restored earth. And it will have physicality to it. It will be new. God keeps saying, I'm going to make old things new. I'm going to restore. I'm going to redeem. And it will not be new in the sense of starting over from scratch. You're going to destroy everything and we're going to start new. But it's the restoration of what he has made. All that God has created, he's not going to just trash. He's going to redeem it. He's going to restore it. And all the ways in which sin has corrupted it, God is going to heal and restore. And it will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I think in that place, there, what we will find is that we will have new bodies, I think when I think about our bodies, it will be, of course, we don't know exactly, but I suspect it might be something like the resurrected body of Jesus. Remember in, in John chapter 20, he appears to his disciples and they recognize him. And in fact, he shows Thomas, he says, here, touch me. Look in my hands with the, the, the uh, nail prints. There is something physical about Jesus that is like he was before he was resurrected, and yet he can walk through doors, and he can move from place to place in a matter of milliseconds. So there is similarity and there is difference. But we will still have bodies. I think we will still, and Paul says to the, writes to the Philippians and talks about having this, this, our bodies being like that of Christ. But I also think that our activity will be different than we tend to think of. I think sometimes we think of heaven as sort of like sitting on a tropical beach with uh, you know, a little hollowed out coconut with some liquid in it that we're just sitting back waiting on people, people waiting on us, right? Or like this, you know? I think she's right. I think that, you know, we're going to work. We're going to create. We're going to do things. Why? Because that's who God is. God is a creator. God loves to create. It's a part of his nature. And I think that that's a part of the image of God that's been implanted in us. Some of the most wonderful moments of life are when we create something. And we stand back and say, wow, that was fun. That was awesome. Our work will be different in the sense that it won't be the toil that we have at, because of the fall. But work wasn't a part of the fall. It wasn't a part of the curse. Adam and Eve were working in the garden. They were tilling the soil. They were planting. They were harvesting. The curse came and made it really difficult. But they were working. And work won't exhaust us the way it does now. Why? Because we'll practice perfect Sabbath rest like we're supposed to. We will, we will rest. We'll get the sleep that we need. And work won't define our value and our worth like it so often does for us now. Why are we workaholics? Because we find value and worth in our work. And people 
give us, make us feel important because they recognize what we do. But in heaven, it won't be for that reason. It will be simply because of the joy of creating and the joy of working and the joy of, of doing what God does. And we will have relationships with each other. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but we will love each other. We will care for each other. We will enjoy being with each other. It will be far better than we can imagine. And things that divide us now, the things that come between us now, and the ways in which you hurt each other now will disappear. And I think there will be an element of learning because we will always be experiencing more and more of God. Because if we get to the place where we've experienced everything of God and we know everything God knows, then we're God. But it will be a joy to, as God reveals himself more and more to us. And that means to me that heaven is far, will be far more joyous than we often picture it. Now, the scriptures talk often about the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast. And in Revelation 19, the, John said, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is nothing more joyous and exciting than a wedding. As people bring their lives together and, and enjoy one another. And the, and, the, and the celebration of that great event. I think sometimes, I think in our... In our revivalistic culture and in our evangelical mindset, I think we have, we've sort of equated seriousness with somberness. It's not the same. Jesus was very serious about his mission and his calling and his work in the world. But he had to be the most joyous person who ever lived because children flocked to him and people couldn't get close enough to him. But he was still serious, but he was filled with joy. And, and you think about a wedding. Most of the weddings that I've performed and the, and the premarital counseling I've done with couples, you know, it, it's about bringing together two families who are often very different. And that brings unique challenges and unique experiences and just a lot of fun. Sometimes not so fun. But what you have is you have two people who say, I have, this is what normal is to me. And we're bringing ourselves to, bringing together our lives and now we're creating a new normal. And sometimes that can be difficult. I think about often like unwrapping Christmas presents is one example I often use. Some, some families, everyone sits around the, the room, the person has a gift, they open it up. Everyone oohs and ahs and looks at it. If it's closed, maybe they try them on or they, you know, they model jewelry or whatever. And, you know, you take, it might take five minutes for that gift. Then you move to the next person and it takes a long time to open the gifts. Other families, you put the stack in front of everyone. You say go and the paper's flying everywhere and ribbons and bows. And, and then everybody's done and you say, ooh, what'd you get? And they're looking at everyone's stuff. And I've had, and I watch couples begin to smile at each other because they are, they're realizing how different they are. And you come together and you say, well, how are we going to do gifts? Well, of course we're going to do gifts this way. That's what we always do. That's right. That's normal. Really? No, this way is normal. And what they have is the joy of combining what they've known as normal into a new normal. And creating new traditions and new things. And, and in heaven, we will come together like this. And we will have the joy of experiencing each other and learning from each other and saying, wow, that's awesome. It, and, you know, there will be so much variety in heaven. I think we tend to think of heaven as just sameness. We're all going to be the same. We're all going to look the same. 
We're going to think the same. But God didn't create us the same. I'm fascinated by Revelation 7, 9. As it describes, John says, I looked and I saw there a great multitude. No one can count. From where? Every nation, tribe, people, and language. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing about this passage, says, there will be nationalities in heaven. There will be different groups of people in heaven. So when we get to heaven, there will be Nigerians in heaven. There will be Koreans in heaven. There will be Guatemalans in heaven. There will be Italians in heaven. There will be Germans in heaven. There will be Mexicans in heaven. There will be Chinese in heaven. There will be Canadians in heaven. There will be Australians in heaven. There will be a few Americans in heaven too. Hopefully. But instead of our differences dividing us, they will be an opportunity to learn from each other. See, now our, dif- our differences, especially nationally, they divide us. And na- our national differences are all about power. Our national differences are all about how can we get those people to do what we want so that we pad our pockets or we make ourselves feel more secure. Our differences now lead to conflict and war in heaven. Our differences will just be a way of bringing more spirit and more variety to the kingdom of heaven. And we will celebrate our differences because our focus will be on God, not on us. We will not be saying, look, you're different, so you go over there. We'll not hang our heads about our differences. They will bring joy. They will bring so much more better spirit and variety to what it means to be a part of heaven. No wonder scripture talks so much to us about the unity of the body. Because what we're going to do then, we ought to be doing now. Instead of dividing us, it ought to be uniting us. And in, and in that uniting together, we will find in heaven that the ways in which we hurt each other will be healed. One of our favorite passages is Revelation 21.4 that says, In heaven there will be no more tears, no more sorrow or pain. And all the ways now in which we hurt one another and we come between each other will, be, will disappear. Because we will love one another. We will care for one another. We will have relationship with one another in a powerful way. When we get to heaven, it will be, it's not escape. It's coming together it's not getting rid of, of, our, of the things that confine us, but it will be reward. Scripture talks to us often about how the, in heaven we will receive the reward for the sacrifices we've made for Christ while we're on earth. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you. 
when people speak evil against you, persecute you, for great is your reward in heaven. There's, sometimes that feels a little bit mercenary to us. You know that, well, I'll go through the sacrifice because eventually I'm going to be rewarded for it. It's not that sense of reward. It's not like we will be, we're doing a job that we're getting paid for. It's more like, N.T. Wright says, we're, as we're, we're investing ourselves in a relationship. It's like the investment we make in marriage or in our friendships that we, we sacrifice for one another and we learn about each other and we give ourselves to each other so that we can enjoy each other more. So that we can know the bond of relationship more and more. And that's what, that's what our, our reward will be. It's, you know, it, it's not a sense of, 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 of a mercenary spirit. It's a sense of receiving the blessing of God because we have been willing to sacrifice for God. You know, one of the great questions whenever we talk about heaven is, who gets there? Who, who will be in heaven? And we often frame it in the sense of who gets to go to heaven? Or as we're going to talk about next week, who doesn't get to go to heaven? And often we, we end up trying to create a formula. We love formulas, don't we? I mean, we, we think about formulas because if you have a formula, then you don't really have to think anymore. All you have to do is say, do I match the formula? As I read about it, just recently I was reading a guy who was talking about heaven... And he said, one of the great things about heaven is that you know everybody there will have, will have passed God's entrance requirements. I'm thinking, what does that even mean? Entrance requirements. Like we all know the code, the secret handshake. You know, you know the password to punch into the keypad? I think what it means, what he means is we have, we found the secret. And often for most people, that means I've prayed the prayer or I've said the words. And that gets me in the door. And while it is important for us to pray prayers, to repentance, confession, are very important. it's a very important part of what it means to be a follower of God. I suspect that often... Though that idea, that formula becomes more important to us than living a life of discipleship with Jesus. And heaven is much more about people who want to follow Jesus, who want to live a life of discipleship with Jesus, than it is about saying, I prayed the prayer, I said the words, I've checked the box, now I go do what I want. Dennis Kinlaw says that Jesus seldom says to his disciples, talks to his disciples about believing in him. There are a few cases where he says that, but he said, you read the Gospels, most of the time what Jesus says is, follow me. Follow me. Now granted, what we believe leads to our behavior, and they're certainly connected But saying a few words or praying a prayer is not enough. 
It's about following Jesus. Because what we're really talking about in heaven is reaching the, is, is just simply reaching the fulfillment of our desires and our dreams that we have on this earth in a limited way of wanting what God wants. That God's passion is our passion. His desire is our desire. His dreams and goals are our dreams and goals. And our lives are shaped around wanting what God wants. And so when Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, and he says heaven is the place for people who want what God wants. All of the, all of the, the nature of God, everything to God that is important to God, that it means to be his kingdom, is what heaven will be. And so it will be about love and compassion and truth and grace and mercy. And yes, it often begins for us with a prayer of confession. But that's never enough. It's not about how can I sneak in the door. It's not because those, those formulas tend to lead us to how little can I do and still get in. Heaven's about, I want to know God. I want to follow Jesus. I want my life to be shaped by Christ. And not just a formula that we can check off a box. One of the scariest things Jesus says is in Matthew 7, 21. He says, lots of people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom of heaven. What we're really talking about is that heaven is for people who have embraced the kingdom. And as people still living on this earth, our calling and our desire and our passion is to be agents who are God's agents on earth who are doing everything that we can to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our dream, our goals, our passion is about answering the prayer we prayed a few moments ago, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we desire. That's what we want. We want to be agents of God to bring that about. And N.T. Wright says that, he said, I think you can, you can boil that down to three categories. That we are concerned about beauty. That we, are, we take seriously God's command to steward his creation. To help people see God and what he's created, both in nature and in people. And we embrace that command. We talk about justice, that we care about the people that the rest of the world tends to kick to the curb and take advantage of. This is why God keeps telling the people of Israel over and over and over again, the aliens and the strangers among you, the widows, the orphans, the poor, they're your responsibility. You take care of them. You watch over them. And if you don't, you'll deal with me. That's why Jesus, when talking about the end days and talking about separating the sheep and the goats, and he says, what separates them is how you treated the thirsty and the hungry and the naked and the poor and the imprisoned. We ought to be agents. We are called to be agents of God, to fight for justice, to be a voice for the voiceless. 
and to be sources of compassion for people in need because those are the characteristics of the kingdom. That's the heart of God. And heaven is all about the heart of God. And we ought to be agents for evangelism. I think often we see evangelism as helping people get into heaven. And that's a part of it. But actually, what we're really talking about in evangelism is trying to help people understand and embrace and, be, and, and accept the grace of God in their lives now. So that they can be set free from the bondage of sin. So that people don't have to live in fear, but in peace. People don't have to, to live in in, in the bondage of, of all that the evil one wants to do to them, but they've been set free and live in the freedom of the grace and the beauty and the glory and the love of Christ now. It's not that we're not saying how many people can we, can we check off our boxes and get them into heaven. And we want people to go to heaven. Of course we do. But we want people to live now, just like we want to live now. And the kingdom is not just about the day to come. It's about God in Christ bringing his kingdom to earth now. We want people to be set free now and to live in the glorious joy and grace and love of Christ now. And so we work and we sacrifice and we give and we share and we live so that people can see that. Instead of being separate things, as we think about beauty and justice and evangelism, it's really all one because we have a holistic view of the kingdom. And ultimately, of all the things we've talked about, ultimately heaven, it's heaven because God is there. I mean, it's only heaven because it's God's dwelling place. It's in heaven that we will experience the fullness of God. We will know God like we've never known him before. You know, when you get to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is is writing about love. And he gets into that section and he shifts gears and he starts talking about knowledge. And he says, now we don't know. We only know, like, see through a glass darkly and we know in part. But then we shall know fully even as we are fully known. On that day, we will know God because all the barriers that we now have to knowing God will be removed. We live with so many barriers about knowing God, physical barriers, emotional barriers, mental barriers, and some are more pronounced than others. But on that day, the barriers will be removed and we will know God. And isn't it fascinating that all this that Paul writes about knowledge is in the context of his most profound message about love. Because knowledge and love are connected. Love lasts forever. Love is eternal. Heaven is about love because God is love. And we will know God's love perfectly. All of the hindrances, all of the barriers will be gone and we will experience the fullness of God's love in us. And that is our hope.
our hope in heaven. And heaven is all about hope. That's why we live now for that hope. And we sacrifice now for that hope. That the day will come when God, in the words of N.T. Wright, will set all things to rights. And the old will be made new. And what is limited will be seen in full. And what is broken will be restored. That's our hope. Because Christ is risen. We have hope. And sometimes some of the songs that we sing may not be perfect theology. But they're really just human expressions of trying to describe that hope. Trying to describe what it will be like when we are in this, in this place with God that's so much bigger than what we could now imagine. You know, I, I love Fanny Crosby's song about heaven. You know, she, Fanny Crosby, who was blind virtually all of her life, one of the songs she wrote says, when my life's work is ended, And I cross the swelling tide. When the bright and glorious morning, I shall see. I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And his smile will be the first to welcome me. You know, in a nutshell, that's heaven. That on that day... We will see our Savior. And it will be more glorious than we can dream or imagine. And the calling of God on us now is to live in such a way that we are anticipating that joy. To live in such a way that we are not just thinking about ourselves experiencing it, but others as well. And my question for us this morning is, are we living in that hope? And what are we doing to help others experience and know that joy and that hope now so that they can experience it then? Father, thank you for the promises you've given us. Thank you for the power of your word to open our eyes to who you are and all that you have you have prepared for us. Give us new glimpses into your marvelous promises. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing together. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk 
contemplate the hope and the promise that is ours in Christ. May you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.